Welcome to the next edition of the Career Conversations podcast brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group. I'm your host, Craig McGregor, and today we have a fascinating conversation with a a friend of mine and our first ever female member for Patterson in the federal parliament, Meryl Swanson. Uh, Meryl is a is a fascinating character, and her story is is amazing. Uh, yeah, she really is is honest and open with us today in, in telling us uh, or, or, or showing us the pathway that's led her to where she is today. And and it's great to to have this conversation because I, I love talking about people's careers, and and you can see and, and hear in the conversation the passion that she's had for her past in in the media and communications, but. If only I'd videoed it, you can see the passion shine through when she's talking about uh, the seat of Patterson and how she's making a difference and what she can achieve in federal politics. And I really thank her for giving up her time. I know she's a busy character, so please sit back uh, and enjoy our conversation with the federal member for Patterson, Meryl Swanson. Today's podcast is brought to you by Hunter Recruitment Group people-centric recruiters. HRG looks to use technology and personal interviewing techniques to ensure the best fit possible for both the candidate and the employer. We operate labour hire and temp services for various sites, conduct permanent recruitment searches and have an innovative program we call temp to perm You can find us on the web www.hrgroup.com.au or search for us on your favourite social site, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. Whether you're an employer looking for a fantastic new team member or you're an individual seeking their next great career move, start a conversation with Hunter Recruitment Group today. So welcome to the Career Conversations podcast, Meryl Swanson. Thank you, Craig. I'm excited about this one. This is going to be a good one. I've I've known you for a little while and I know your career and I'm excited to share it with the listeners. So why don't we go back to the start, a girl from from Curry. Yes, actually. So you grew up in Curry. Grew up in Head and Greeter. Head and Greeter, okay. So, and uh, you know... For anyone who's not familiar, it's about three k's down the road. But when yep. you're in, when you grew up in Head and Greeter, it was a big deal There's to a be. Big difference, yeah. Yes, it was a big difference to be from Head and Greeter as opposed to Curry. But I was born in Curry, and you know, really Curry, Curry, Head and Greeter. Went to Curry, Curry Primary and Curry, Curry High, um, and you know, just had really uh, a very local sort of um, early years to my life. Yeah, so nice upbringing. Yeah, my my mum and dad. Um, well, my mum still lives just, uh, you know, right on Curry Golf Course, more or less. There's just a road between them. Um, so I grew up m- more or less on the golf course. Mum was pregnant and played golf with me. And then nice. people often ask me about golf and when did I start. I can't actually remember, but I think my first memory of golf was riding on my dad's buggy when I was tiny, like, you know, maybe two. So, you know, in terms of, and I don't mean like an electric buggy, I mean just, you know, a buggy, a push buggy, and I would just hop on it and ride it like a horse, you know. So uh, I can just remember sitting on the bag and Dad would just drag me around and so lots Sounds of... Sounds like fun. Yeah, it was fun. Lots of really strong and good memories, you know. So we're going to get kid. into your career a little bit and I probably was a bit remiss of me not to introduce you as our federal member for the seat of Patterson. Yes. Here looking after, it's a big seat, but we'll get into that later on. But so you started off on the golf course. Was there any career aspirations to be a golfer? Well, there was, and I guess that's why I mentioned it. Um, I, you know, I displayed a bit of talent for it as a teenager, probably. Um, But isn't it funny because I always enjoyed my golf and 
I did put a lot of effort in. I used to get up and practice before I'd go to school. Um, actually, it's an interesting how you have these connections, but uh, Andrew Johns, you know, of course, Joey Johns, mm-hmm. the great footballer, well, his grandmother, Margaret Johns, Maggie Johns, and Cess, his grandfather, uh, on his dad's side, they just lived in their later years three or four day, doors down from us. So Maggie used to come and help me collect the balls after I'd hit them in the morning before I'd go to school. So I'd hit hundreds of golf balls every yep. morning. But yeah, look, I did have aspirations. But isn't it funny because whilst I loved it, I always had that little bit of, mm, I really didn't quite think I was good enough. Other people did, but I didn't have that self-belief. And I think now that is such an important thing uh, I know we're going to talk about that later as yeah, well, about absolutely. advice to a younger self, but I didn't quite believe in myself enough. Yep. So that's an interesting thing. But yeah, I did I did have some aspirations um, in terms of golf. I mean, who wouldn't want to be yeah, a pro absolutely. golfer? But at the, uh, the other end, I knew people, young people that were playing and trying to get uh, tour cards. So were you or playing in tournaments, travelling around? Or? Oh, no, no, no not, not to that I, extent. Only ever as an amateur. But... Um, you know, I knew young people trying to make it. In those days, a few women, and but mostly young guys who are my age, and it was really hard. And it was really, really hard for women in those days. I mean, Jan Stevenson was probably, she's older than me, but she was probably the she one we the looked up girl, to. But she, yeah, but she kind of went to America and that idea of American college scholarships wasn't really formulated, certainly not in regional New South Wales. So, But there was good coaching. Um, but anyway, you know, that wasn't to be, but it's left me with a lifelong skill mm. uh, and a great love. Do you still play golf? I do, yeah. yeah. Uh, sadly, I don't play often enough. Don't have enough time yeah, for some reason? I think it's probably about six months since I picked up a stick. So, yeah, I play very intermittently, so I really shouldn't say I do, like, so confidently, but <laughs> I love it. I'll always love it. I'll get to play in another phase of my life, uh, not right now, but, you know, it's, it's a great love. So there was that, and um, I suppose the other thing that I really loved was the idea of I've always been interested in helping people so I quite like the idea of medicine and being um, you know involved in the medical world in some way whether it be a doctor or something like that so that's always so something. was that high school Meryl was she thinking down that path yeah yes um, and also but funnily enough I was always quite political even at high school Uh, and I did out an old suitcase with all of my yearbooks from high school and things that you know in year 10 people sign things when they leave school and they let you know they leave you great messages and and uh, I noticed in it there was a questionnaire and it said uh, person most likely to be prime minister and it was and my all my friendship group had written me which I look back now and I just laugh out loud at the thought of that but I did have I, don't, I won't say I wanted to be a politician, but I was a politically aware yeah, teenager. Which is, most teenagers, high schools, wouldn't, wouldn't even have a clue mm, about yeah. what a politician is. Some some adults still don't know what a politician is. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting to think that that's where you've gotten to in, in your career, um, coming from from Curry High. Yeah. But uh, it's interesting. I love that sort of stuff that people. You know, there's, there's jobs out there that the career advisor at high school, they're not going to point people in certain directions because they don't really know what that job is. And I reckon a politician's one of those jobs. So. Yeah, careers advisors play such an important role in yeah. high schools still. Uh, and maybe not so much even in, in picking a job, but, 
you know, in trying to help people find their skill set. Yep. You know, I still think that that's an important thing. Um, but it's also what you mentioned before, and I, I, this is what my belief is, the, the role or the career that you're in is a vehicle and that vehicle helps you achieve what you want to achieve. And what you just mentioned was helping people. Mm. You know, I'm in a role today in my recruitment business Really, it's helping people. Mm. That's what I'm passionate about. That's what I love to do. It's my vehicle that I drive to do what I want to do. You've weaved your way through your career to get to a point where you can do that to the maximum um, of your advantage through helping people. That's and, the vehicle. And I think you're right. I think we've all got uh, leanings, if you like. You know, We've all got certain s- sets in our mind or in mm. our soul or whatever you want to s- describe it as where it might not fit into a what do you want to be when you grow up box that yeah. might be really hard to put a label on it but you've got a rough idea of what you like mm. you know and I think and, and what you're drawn to um, the other thing at high school I wouldn't say that I was a brilliant debater I certainly did debating but I really liked public speaking and the element yeah the element of that wasn't so much um the argument like I I never wanted to be a lawyer or that wasn't I wasn't always I'm not actually a terribly confrontational person wasn't actually about arguing I actually enjoyed the entertainment of it so I used to write speeches you know I, I remember I wrote a speech once um in year seven and it was about uh you know exercise and getting people motivated and you know norm do you remember norm yeah. the you know and and uh you know i wrote that uh, you know sometimes some people think that uh you know adidas is an italian dessert and nike's <laughs> mike's brother and you know it, it was it was just and i remember thinking oh, i quite enjoyed that so um helping people that feel good factor is part of my makeup as well you know i actually do like to help people and make them feel good. So I think that's an important thing and maybe uh, that sets me apart from some of my contemporary colleagues because I think a lot of people believe that politics has to be all about confrontation Mm. and I pose the question, does it? I don't actually believe it does. Is that that driven a little bit by the media, do you think? Because that's what we see. Look, you know, coming from the media and that's probably the next thing in my career, I'm... Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a little bit remiss to always blame the media. Yep. At the end of the day, uh, the media, you know, write stories that people buy, that people read, that they're interested in. So they're catering to an appetite in the market as well. So mm. I'm, I'm really uh, one of those people that do- doesn't like to say, oh, it's all the media's fault. Look, at the end of the day, it's a two-way street. Yeah, well, what we might get to when we do talk about you being a politician is more about what you do. And mm. that education mm. might help mm. some people listening going, ah, oh, there's more to this than Absolutely standing in, there a, is. In, in parliament and arguing. Mm. So. There is, most right. definitely. So let's talk about, you left high school. Did you go straight into media or where did you go? No, uh, so it's quite interesting. I didn't go away on schoolies like my friends and I can't actually remember. Me neither, I what, worked. Yeah, well, that's what I did. My sister at the time was uh, managing the Queen's Wharf Brewery restaurant and I went out on the town with my friends and I remember the next morning she came in and she said, oh, the kitchen hand's phoned in sick, can you come and work in the kitchen? Washing dishes, helping prepare food, you know, chopping and basically cleaning. And I was like, oh, sure, you know. So I said, look, on one condition, you don't tell anyone else I'm your sister because I don't want to be the boss's sister. You know, I just want to go and work the shift and let's just leave it at that. I'll help you out, you know. Anyway, of course, that shift turned into, oh, can you come again tomorrow, you know. And then in the end, I got a job working in the kitchen 
at the Queen's Wharf Brewery, which was such a busy place. Mm. You remember in 1989, it was opened by the Queen, I think, in October 88 uh, for the bicentenary. And it was just pumping. You know, it was such a busy place and I made a lot of friends. Started uni that year as well. So I did communications. It would have been a good job to have during uni time. Yeah, it was great. I mean, and, and I worked really, really hard and, you know, sort of eventually got to become a waitress and, you know, and then helped with a bit of the cooking and, you know, had some bar shifts and did all that stuff. So, yeah, started communications at Newcastle Uni and worked at the brewery Mm. uh, for those first two years of uni. Uh, But interestingly, just getting back to your point about careers advisors, one of my career advisors at school said, oh, look, I think you should apply for work experience at NBN Television in Year 10 in those days, which I did, and I really enjoyed it. And uh, that's actually, I think, when I first met Jodie McKay. Uh, she was working as uh, the librarian uh, yeah, wow. in the tape library at MBN in the newsroom. Anyway, uh, then, so I had to do a work placement at uni. And I thought, oh, I might go back to MBN. I really enjoyed that. And I'd like to, you know, investigate that a little bit more. So I did that for my work placement at uni. And that was in my second year, late second year at uni. And I uh, did that. They really thought I was useful and they offered me a job. So I was caught in probably the first great dilemma of my life, aside from the golf dilemma. It was, do I take my dream job at this fantastic TV station locally, you know, it was great, or do I continue on with uni? Couldn't do both? Well, I really wanted to finish uni. I was the first person in my immediate family to go to uni and I had this thing about being a girl from Curry who wanted to do well and go to uni. I just really wanted to do that. I wanted that achievement. I was very driven. And I thought, how can I make this happen? So I went to MBN and said, look, I can't... I really want to finish uni. I just explained to them why. I said, but I desperately want to take this job. And they said, well, look, you know what? We could make it work with about 25 to 30 hours a week. Can you fit your uni in around that? So that's what I did. So I then... Fit my, fitted my uni around that last year around working at MBN. Yeah, that's perfect. And it was amazing. It was just such a great opportunity and I loved it. So I worked on a program. It, was, it used to be called This Morning. Anna Manzoni was the producer. Uh, in those days we had uh, Nat Jeffrey, who used to do the weather, and Belinda Green, who had been Miss World mm-hmm. presenting. Anna also presented for a while. And I, was, I started out as the researcher, assistant producer, and you know, often I'd produce the show if Anna was away. And it was just a terrific again, experience. isn't that one of those jobs that behind the scenes no one really knows about you're not you're not up the front and in front of the camera no. and a, like I said before a career advisor might not know about that sort of opportunity Job, right. in that sort of space so you've got to actually get out there and see it and feel it and touch it mm. and, and, and what ba- a great experience yes and and basically I lined up all of the interviews for the program so like any of those programs you have set interviews in a week you know you have a health segment and you know and there were of course the advertorials which paid for the show mm-hmm. but uh, inserted around that were news stories, essentially, so things that were topical or current, and and I would find those stories and you know write write up the briefs and the questions and you know prepare the uh, prepare the interview largely, and I absolutely loved doing that work. Mm. That was a terrific a terrific entree into the media, and also you know really uh, learning about lots and lots of things. I mean, 
you know, Craig, I was 20. Yeah, it's awesome. I was very young, but and it was a big responsibility, but I really loved it. I've got, um, a, I've got a saying that I use a lot in recruitment and our career transition business, and you'll like this saying, it's negotiations all about leverage. Absolutely. If you have no leverage, you can't negotiate. Mm. You've gone into NBN and, and asked them for a worse pla- work placement and they've offered you a job. Mm. Now, they could have said, no, this is full-time only, mm. but they wanted Merrill. So you had leverage to go, great, I can pair this back to fit around my uni as opposed to them not knowing you and not having any leverage. So people don't get that sometimes in career space that if they go to an interview and they're the person that they really, really want and they want to negotiate those hours or whatever it might be, if they've got the leverage, they can. Mm. So you've just given us a great example of that in the NBN story. I think that's true and I think the – it's not a caveat but I think what I'd I'd say to add to that is – I was very genuine, but I was also mm. absolutely flexible and determined, you know, and, and going to them saying, listen, I really want to finish my studies if I can please make that work. Um, but I really expressed to them I was desperate to take up the job. They knew how – I said to them, look, I'll work really hard. Yeah. So, yes, sure, they, they wanted me, but I also displayed my absolute dedication and willingness to, to do what they yep. needed and do it really well. So they also had some leverage too. So it, it was it very very much a two-way street. It was, it but was it's a also great a thing. Great opportunity because you're actually studying and you're learning. Mm. So you're getting theory and practical at the same time. Whereas I'd always wish I'd done that. I was storming in a furniture store. Um, so I'm packing trucks, unloading mm. lounges, doing lots of stuff while I'm learning about HR. Those last two years of my uni, if I would have had a graduate program or a yes. industrial relations type role or work for a recruitment agency, I think it would have been a different learning experience, but also for my resume building for the future, would have been more profitable or not profitable, but more advantageous. Yes, I understand what you're saying. So I think what, what you've done there yeah. is perfect for marrying up that theory and practical for when you do mm-hmm. uh, get your degree, you look much better in the competition of the world uh, for the next job. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think that's true, actually. Yeah. Although, think of how fit you got lifting all those sofas <laughs> and lounges, Craig. It was so, so hard. I made, made, made your bones nice and strong <laughs> for the later years. That's right. So, yeah, so you worked at NBN. So, you worked on that show. Where to next? So, after that, I was working at NBN and Nat Jeffrey was also working in those days at 2KO. He was doing, I think, a, we- a surf report or a okay. weather spot. And David, a guy called David Jones, who was a quite a famous morning breakfast announcer at mm. 2KO in those days when they were out at Charlestown, was doing breakfast. And Nat came to work one day and said, uh, look, they're looking for someone to do, a, you know, a, a bit of a sidekick kind of role to, to DJ to David Jones. They, they, maybe they want a woman, you know, do, do some a little bit of news briefs, some weather, a bit of traffic, you know, occasionally pop in and have a chat with him in the studio. He said, you should you know, phone. It was Richard King who was the PD in those days. So I did that and um, lo and behold got the job. So I was then working, I'd get up, I was still living with mum and dad in Head and Greta. I'd get up at 3, 3 3.30 in the morning. I'd drive to the radio station, start at 4, work there from 4 till about 8.30. Then I'd drive to TV and uh, work in, in by that stage I'd finished uni yeah, I thankfully I, I couldn't I, so I sort of had the first 12 months at MBN and, and uni and then I was able to get this other job so then I would work in radio from early early morning four in the morning till about eight thirty nine, 39 uh, and then I'd go to MBN and work for it and, and by that stage I think I was full-time at MBN because uni had finished mm. so you know, I did that for, I think, about 18 months. Yeah, two jobs. Yeah, Tough. and it was full on. I mean, you know, 
oh, to be young again. Um, <laughs> I think I, I did have a boyfriend at the time, quite a nice boy, and I don't know if I ever saw him. Just but anyway, him. yeah. <laughs> um, but um, you know, still living at home with mum and dad, which of course was you know fantastic. Uh, so that was did that for a bit. Um, and that finished and then I was made redundant from NBN. We, you might remember we had amalgamations mm. uh, back in those days with, uh, you know, Channel 9 as it was. So the program was completely changed. I lost my job. I was quite devastated. And th- devastated. Was, so, was Prime uh, going yes, down pri- at the same Prime time? Prime had just sort of kicked off in those okay. years as well. Because I was th- just thinking that if that was the case, that the, the job opportunities in The Hunter would have been drastically reduced for media it was it was a time of great upheaval Mm. in the media generally uh locally uh and then i i'm just trying to isn't it funny how you try and patch it all together then i got a job at the abc producing lindy burns and craig hamilton's sports show on a saturday morning morning, yeah. yeah and i went uh from there and at that time I'd also had a job at the Delaney Hotel waiting on tables um, because I thought, well, I've lost my job. I I went back to my old skill set, which was always handy. Uh, And Chris Chapman and his wife owned the Delaney in those days. And, you know, he was a great boss. And I think uh, he'd remembered me from the pub or, you know, and I just went and said, look, Chris, I you know need my job. And he was like, yep, you're a good worker, you know. So I still had had that, which was great. Uh, And then... We, um, we had a, a person at the ABC in Newcastle called Michael Mason and he asked me to go to Sydney uh, to do a bit of relief work at what was then 2BL, which is now ABC Sydney or 702 as they call it. Mm-hmm. So, And that was really a pivotal time. Uh, I went down there for a few months and I worked with Andrew Ollie. Uh, who was, uh, you know, just a seminal radio broadcaster in Australia. He's no longer with us, uh, but you you might have heard of the uh, Andrew Ollie lectures. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So he was incredible, just a consummate professional. And in those days, his program uh, was the the morning program uh, and he was a stickler for detail. So things had to be right. You had to source every fact, every figure. And uh, I'd start work at midnight or two o'clock in the morning and I would go in and make all the phone calls to London and New York. And because in those days yeah, we didn't no, have internet. we didn't have the internet and the technology. We're talking 92, 93 mm-hmm. by this stage. Uh, and so I'd do all of that research. So I was a researcher for his program and I'd pull up all the stories, get all the backgrounds. So similar to what I done at MBN but just for radio Uh, and and at a much higher level you know in terms of editorial content and quality but he taught me to be absolutely pedantic about detail and you know people that work for me now know that Mm -hmm. if they give me if I've got a a speech to make in parliament and there's a statistic I want to know where's it from when when where was that statistic raised from you know what's the data set you know so I've still got that embedded and I'll always be grateful to Andrew Ollie for that because he gave me that idea that you just can't sprout things you actually need to be confident of Mm. your source Um, so did that uh, and then came back to Newcastle and spent some time working for Newcastle Council so before Uh, you come back I was going to ask how did a girl from Head and Greeter go in the big smoke Oh, yeah. Look, I, I was really lucky. I had a, a friend that was living over at Balmoral over um, sort of on, in the east. Uh, and so I just rented a room off her and, you know, 
drove into the ABC every morning and it was, it was in Harris Street so they'd moved to the ABC uh, in those days and you know I just I, I actually I think I was so busy working and, and when you're working you're doing you, weird hours hours like that you know and and um, you're very tired a lot of the time or you just in fact you don't even know that you're tired you're just working so hard uh, I don't know I just fitted it in it was you know, I learnt my way around the city quite well. Uh, I've always been good with directions, Craig. <laughs> I don't know how or why, but I am. But anyway, so that was you know that was an interesting time. Uh, that finished so did career or yearning to be closer to home bring you back to Newcastle? Uh, really, a bit of both. Um, the the thing in Sydney was only ever going to be for a set time. It wasn't a full time position. And in those days, uh, again, we were coming out of that recession. The ABC had really had its budget uh, tightened, and they weren't employing, which yeah, was okay. really tricky. So, and so I was very much a graduate coming into that early nineties recession. And a lot of people that work came into work in the early nineties have similar stories. Mm. There were cutbacks. It was very difficult to get a job. Often, mm. I mean, I'd been fortunate and I'd had jobs, and you know, and I don't think I've ever, you know, touched wood really been out of work when mm. I didn't want to be. Uh, but came back, did some, still did some work at the ABC in Newcastle for a while. Then also did some work with Newcastle Council. And that was really interesting because I had that sporting connection with the ABC and, you know, Craig Hamilton. I'd had a lot of sort of thoughts about uh, the Olympics. And as you recall, we, you know, won the bid. Sydney 2000. Yes. So, uh, and I remember uh, Kevin Gosper, he'd come to Newcastle to do an interview with us. And he'd always said, look, just keep in contact, you know. And I had. And so... We then decided, Newcastle Council then decided that it would write a research paper on opportunities for the hunter and the Olympics, so where we might be able to yeah. participate. So it were things like, funnily enough, equestrian, because we had the Ryans, so we thought we could potentially help some of the equestrian teams from around the world train. We knew that we had some rowing capacity with mm -hmm. the river. We knew that there was some athletics and, and things like that. So we looked at those opportunities of how we might be involved, mm -hmm. and, there, and there certainly were opportunities from that. So I wrote that paper, largely. Anyway. And from that paper, um, there was a thing where the, all the councils had banded together over the years. It was in those days called the Hunter Region Association of Councils. And it was more or less their project, but Newcastle was the guiding influence okay, on it. it. Yeah. And they, uh, they then decided to look for a business manager. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, maybe this is something that I could do. I this isn't a media job, though. It isn't a media job, yeah. but there was a lot of communication, uh, there was a lot of research that had to go into it, and I was encouraged by the people at Newcastle Council to apply for it, uh, and so I did, and I got the job, and I was completely astounded, and I, I think I've still got it. There was an article. It was virtually a full-page article in the Newcastle Herald, and it was, you know, uh, 1993, 94. I think I was 23 turning 24, so I was incredibly young and I had this plum job uh, of being the business manager for the Hunter Region, and we changed the name, Hunter Region Organisation of Councils. Uh, and it was basically dealing with all the mayors and general, general managers from every council in the region. And in those days there were 13 because yeah, it included okay. Murundi, Scone, 
and Great Lakes, as well as Newcastle, Lake Macquarie, Cessnock, Maitland. Um, I think even Dungog was involved in those days. So th- I think there were 12 or 13 councils. Of course, the Upper Hunter is now amalgamated, so that's yep. changed somewhat. However, it was a great opportunity and that's where Milton Morris stepped into my life. So he was... I was the business manager. He was... I don't know. He wasn't. He wasn't the CEO. He was. He was. He wasn't. And he wasn't the chair. The chair was John McNaughton. He was the Lord Mayor of Newcastle at the yeah. time. But Milton was sort of a guiding influence, if you like. And so he would do a lot was of. Was he a parliamentarian at the time? No, he no, wasn't. He was running the Hunter Valley Training Company okay. with Kay Sharp. Yep. So Kay was running it, but he was the, you know, yeah. the chair of that organisation. So. Um, Basically, he did all the political kind of backroom stuff and I did all of the work uh, in terms of minute-taking, negotiating with, you know, general managers and and staff and and getting... We wrote a business plan. Uh, Mark Fitzgibbon was then the general manager of Maitland Council. So it was a really interesting time and I just learnt so much. I learnt so much about local government. I learnt about politics. You know, Milton really was my mentor. We spent hours together in the car driving to and fro. We'd regularly drive from Newcastle to Marundi, you know, for a meeting or to Scone, you know, and, and then... Uh, you know, I had an office. two hours next yeah. to that, that man. You know, so lots and lots of time with him and uh, lots of time with John McNaughton as well because my office was actually in the roundhouse at Newcastle Council okay. and he was based in City Hall. So just just a, a pivotal time and I was there until uh, 1996, so three years. Got married in 1996 to Nick mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I was on my honeymoon and I got a phone call from Joel Fitzgibbon and he said, oh, I'd like to offer you a job. I said, well, I'm on my honeymoon. I'm going to ring you when I get back. And he just went, let sure. me check with Nick. Yeah, yeah sure, <laughs> sure. So I, uh, I phoned him and he said, look, I've just been elected, and which I knew in 96, um, you know, I'm looking for uh, someone to come along and, you know, be a media advisor, um, help me prepare for parliament, set up the office in Canberra. So I, you know, I, I accepted that, but I was... In a way, I was very sad to leave the council and, mm-hmm. and that organisation because I loved Milton. I loved working with all of those people. But I saw this as another step Had in my career journey. Had you been a part of the Labor Party? No, not really. Um, I'd been very much from a Labor family. Yep. Uh, and I'd, my uncle was a branch member in Cessnock, Owen Partridge. Um, and I'd off, he'd often asked me to hand out for Eric Fitzgibbon, who was Joel's dad. Mm-hmm. And so I'd, I'd sort of been on the fringes, but I'd never been a member. So I joined at that point uh, and worked for Joel and uh, went to Canberra with him, helped set up his office in Canberra, you know, wrote speeches and, and look, you know, it was such, again, a massive jump for me, just a huge learning curve. And in that year, uh, there were people like Rob McClellan uh, that, you know, Joel was friendly with. Rob went on, of course, to be the Attorney General. Um, who else was in that year? Uh, Mark Latham uh, was in that year with Joel that was elected in 1996. Um, Albo and, and Jenny Macklin, uh, I think, came a little bit... Well, they came a little bit later, I think, from memory. They might have come earlier, actually. They might have been 93. But so there were all those people who were in, you know, the yeah. early stages of their career. Uh, and it was a really interesting time. Uh, and I did that job for 12 months. But actually, a bit over 12 months, I think, from so memory. So you were based in the Hunter? I was living in the Hunter. But living you were helping commuting back and forth from Canberra. To Canberra, to, yep, yep, yep. Similar to your life you have now. <laughs> yeah, funnily enough, uh, all those years later. Uh, so, and then... Um, Basically, um, 
I was in Canberra one day and a man called Alan Ray walked into Joel's office. Uh, at that time, he was uh, heavily involved in um, business in Lake Macquarie. He and his wife Sue had developed and built Rafferty's Resort yeah. down on Cam's Wharf. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'd known him sort of through the Hunter Region Organisation of Councils. Uh, we'd, um, you know, sort of sort of known each other through that organisation a little bit. And he basically came in and said, look, we've got this fantastic opportunity with tourism back in Newcastle. Uh, are you interested in working uh, for Hunter Tourism? Uh, and I thought, oh, OK, maybe. Uh, and again, it was another step up for me and it brought me home. I must confess, working for Joel in that first 12 months of my marriage and um, travelling backwards and forwards was really a strain yeah. um, because I was nearly married. I just wanted to yep. be, you know, with my shiny new husband <laughs> sort of thing, you know. So um, as much as I loved the job, that that was, you know, I think anyone in their first year of marriage if you're away yeah. for half the year. I so, had a similar experience. I had a, yeah. a role when we first had our first Olivia and I was travelling three weeks out of four and I went to the office and said, I can't do it. Yep. I want to be at home with her and, and Amy and you need to find me a job in the office or I'm going to leave. Yeah. And it's so it's just, you've got to make those choices. It, sometimes you do and as much as I love... And I love the job. Yeah, I, that's like me. I loved the politics of it all. I loved being in Canberra. But I got homesick, yeah. to be truthful with you. Yep. Um, and I was still very much a, you know, a homely kind of head and greeter girl. Yeah. I still am, really. <laughs> but so um, anyway, uh, Alan sort of said, you know, you should apply. I applied... I got the job um, and it was at the time when the announcement was made for the BHP closure. So, again, another big shift in the region. Yeah, uh, and so i never forget um, John Howard came to Newcastle uh, and I th wasn't – I'm trying to think. It wasn't Peter Reith. It was – I can't think of who the minister was now. It wasn't Peter. It was well before him. Anyhow, one of the ministers came and we gave this fantastic presentation about how we thought – what we could do is help people who were unemployed but who had lots of barriers to employment. Uh, we could help train them in the tourism industry. Uh, and we did that. And so we, and as an offset to that, we got a million dollars to market the hunter yeah, in places okay. like Europe, Germany particularly, um, and uh, a little bit in, in America. And I worked with a man called Bill Baker, who's still now living in America, great Australian tourism advocate, really knows a lot about placemaking and was sort of a, a really a person before his time. Um, but we worked with Gus Maher from the vineyards uh, and I worked with all of the tourism managers from local government who I knew as well from yep. HROC um, and we pulled together this fantastic marketing plan to market the hunter internationally and it was the first time there'd ever really been a sophisticated coordinated effort to do that. Um, Obviously, the vineyards was the main attraction, but we were trying to develop products like Port Stephens with yeah, whale watching. So we, we really gave that very first big push and it was very instrumental in setting the region on its path. So, again, I was really proud of, of making my contribution to that. Mm. Absolutely loved that job uh, and and did it, um, you know, with all of my heart. And my husband at the and my husband was working for Harvey Norman and he got a phone call from Jerry Harvey and to say, I've got a store in Brisbane, I'd really like you to go up and sort it out. And I suppose that was his career mm -hmm. step. Hard, isn't it? And it was really hard because I loved my job. But, you know, I thought, well, 
you know, I really want to support him in that. So I resigned from my fabulous tourism job and went to live in Brisbane. Uh, and that was very difficult because yeah. I really knew no one. I didn't have any family up there. It was my first proper move away from home. Yeah, I'd lived in Sydney for a bit, but you can always duck home on the weekends, you yeah. know. Canberra, I'd lived in Canberra half the year, but I'd commuted. But moving to Brisbane was wow you know I'm actually a long way away from everything mm. uh, in terms of what I knew and I'll never forget it it was the year that the Knights won the grand final so um, it was just and I'll still I'll still remember it to the day I die you know and that Sunday we just moved we just moved on the Saturday and the grand final was the next day <laughs> and Newcastle yeah. won the grand final the first grand final that we won 97. and and um, it was a case of, oh my goodness, the, the seriously one of the biggest marketing opportunities for Newcastle and the Hunter has just happened. I, I was working in tourism and I'm not there now. You know, like I had, I think young people call it FOMO now, fear of missing out. Well, it wasn't a fear of missing out. I was missing, you out, missing out, you know. Yeah. So, and I, I was incredibly proud and, and so happy, but I wanted to be home. Mm. Um but we lived in Brisbane for five years. Uh, I had a baby. Um, I didn't. I. I didn't really. It's funny. I sort of got offered a job in tourism up there, but um, they said, "Oh, we'd like you to come and give us all New South Wales secrets." <laughs> and I said, "Well, I don't think I can do that because I'm still very parochial." Yep. So I actually didn't work in tourism in Queensland. Um, I uh, I went back and did some study. Uh, I did uh, a Bachelor of Health Sciences in naturopathy. So that was that medical sort of idea of, yeah, okay. you know, um, wanting to help people. Uh, and we had Lara, our first baby, and uh, I, yeah, just sort of really I didn't really have. I, I guess that was my first career hiatus. Yep. Um, you had a different career. I had a different career, yeah. That's right. Yeah, but that's true. I shouldn't think of it like that, mm. should I? That's that's a good pull up on your behalf, Craig. <laughs> um, so I, um, you know, and then when she was, uh, she was just a little bit over one, we moved back to the central coast, back to Erina. Yeah, okay. Again, the Harvey Norman move. Yep. And uh, I um, then uh, so got did back. did you live on the coast? Yeah, lived at McMaster's Beach. Yeah, nice. Yeah, beautiful. So while we are in Brisbane, we lived there for, well, it was about five years, I think, we lived in Brisbane and loved it. Like, lots of great memories up there. I, I mean, I created a Queenslander when it comes yeah, to okay. state of origin. Yep. You have to hold That's that against no me. No. <laughs> um, but, um, and then uh, after that, I moved back to Erin. I lived at McMaster's Beach and we went to the Melbourne Cup and we were there with uh, the local radio station and the manager of the radio station got chatting to me and he said, oh, you know, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm mum and, you know, uh, we'd started a cafe at Harvey Norman in Erina. Yeah, okay. yep. And so I was helping with that, you know, back to the hospitality stuff again, you know, we, but this time... So this would have been, what, 2002, 2003? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And uh, so... Um, we were, I was helping run the cafe, you know, doing all that stuff. Nick's sister, my husband's sister, was uh, helping with that as well. And talking to the manager of the local radio station, and he said, oh, you know, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm a mum and we've got the cafe and it's busy. And he said, oh, what else have you done? And I said, oh, you know, a million... Just a little thing. I said, oh, I said, oh, a million years ago I worked in radio, you know. And he said, oh, he said, we need a newsreader. And I said, oh, look, you know, I'll come in. I said, it's a long time since I've done anything like that, but I'll, I'll come in and just do a, a trial for you and you can, you know, you, you probably won't want me, but I'll have a go. Mm. And uh, I remember doing that and I got the job. 
so I was reading the news on the weekend at 2GO and CFM mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, Todd Carey, the uh, news director down there, was just wonderful because I was very rusty. And uh, I ended up doing that and it was fabulous, um, really enjoyed that. And then Nick got another phone call from Jerry Harvey. <laughs> Jerry Harvey's wrecked my career in many ways. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that, he's been great. But um, So he got a phone call to go to Melbourne. And I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, it's the biggest store for Nick in Melbourne with Harvey Norman, so we went to, we went to Melbourne. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, you know, uh, I could try and get a job in radio in Melbourne, but Metropolitan Radio was very different to what I'd been doing, working on the weekends, you know, yeah, it's very, cruisier. very competitive, you know, and I, I wasn't sure that I was ready for it either. So I decided to go back and do some more training in radio. And uh, I worked at a tiny little station uh, called, um, uh, oh goodness, I can't even think of what it was called now, but basically it was over near St Kilda uh, and the guy that ran it was Clark Sinclair and he was incredible. He was uh, medically blind but he had run this radio station for most of his life. It was based in in a back room of his home but he'd trained many, many good people in radio and... uh, Mal Warden, who's well-known in Melbourne. Lots of well-known news presenters, particularly in Melbourne, had been trained by Clark. Uh, Greg Evans, actually, was trained by Clark as well. So I went and I started to do this, you know, presenting programs and he was training and whatnot. And he pulled me aside one day and he said, I don't know why you want to be a newsreader. He said, you're good, you're fine, you've got a nice voice, you can read the news. He said, but why? Why do you want to read the news? And I said, oh... I just want to be better at it. You know, I'd like to try and get a job in Melbourne. And he said, why don't you actually try and be a presenter? That's what you should do. You know, you've got lots of knowledge. You seem to like people and their stories. Why don't and you said, and he actually gave me a really nice compliment. He said, you're a fantastic empathiser and a really great listener. He said, and that's that makes a really great presenter. And I said, oh, okay. I'd never even... Really so I was going to say, would you have thought of that without no, him telling you? Never in a million years, Craig. Mm. Like I, it, it hadn't even been on my radar. Yeah. You know, I really didn't, I just didn't think of it. You know, and is I, it because I, you didn't see yourself as a presenter? Yes. You just saw yourself as a newsreader. Uh yes, and I, I suppose, to be truthful, I. I saw people who presented programs with these enormous personalities and very opinionated and very strong and. I just wasn't like that, and I'm still not. You know, I, I tend to, I tend to see both sides of an argument often. You know, um, so I was quite taken, not taken aback, but you know, it was a compliment. So I thought, oh, he said you really should think about it. So I did, and he started to train me and bring out my confidence more as a presenter, uh, and again that sense of humour. I've always had that sense of humour, but. I wasn't really confident enough. And people will be listening to this going, oh, come off it. You've <laughs> always... People see me as very confident. Um, it's something... I'm the same. That if, if you talk to someone from my high school, yeah. they wouldn't believe that that's the guy standing up at the Maywell debate as the MC. They no, wouldn't believe yeah. it's me. Well, it's interesting because when I'm when I'm presenting, or and even at high school, I was a good public speaker, but it was something I stepped into. It was almost like an actor but it's a role it's a Mm. job that you do you step in you do you see the thing for me is um the old the old radio saying was preparation prevents poor performance performance. so if i'm prepared if i'm prepared i could step in and do a really good job 
So, and again, Andrew Wally, that's been a really, now that I think of it, that's been a really strong reinforcing core belief uh, and and things that have been reinforced by professionals around me. The really good people are prepared. Mm, And the more prepared you are, the less prepared you need to be in a funny way because you get better at working off the cuff. And these days, you know, I can gladly jump to my feet and speak for half an hour off the cuff without a prepared note. But it's because the knowledge is in my mind and I'm more confident. Mm. But that, it's like a muscle. You Mm -hmm. have to grow that, you know. And I would say that to any young person, you know. You, You may not be able to do it immediately like anything, you have to train, you have mm. to keep doing it. You know, re- repetition is the mother of excellence. So uh, did that and uh, thought, okay, I can do this. Um, then remember coming home for New Year's Eve and waking up on New Year's Day one day and thought, right, that's it, I want to move home. I want to. I was actually really homesick. I w- yep. My parents were getting older. I, by this stage, had two beautiful children, two little girls, um, and I thought, I want my kids to know their grandparents. Yeah. That was really my driving force. Uh, I didn't sort of, you know, I'd lived, not, not a gypsy life, but we'd certainly moved a so good number Nick, of times. Nick make a phone call to Jerry instead of Jerry <laughs> making a phone call to Nick? Well, what happened is... Um, I said to him, he said, all right, well, this is Nick. He said, will you find a job and we'll move back? And I think he thought I'd dither around for six months. <laughs> it was 14. Challenge accepted. It was 14 days, Craig. Yep. I got a job in 14 days. Poor Kev Kellaway, who was working at 2HD in those days, I think he was sick of me phoning him. I think I phoned him like every day for a week um, until he finally called me back and uh, said, send me a demo, you know, and I, I went in and uh, did an interview and then got got a job as a promotions manager with 2HD but a backup announcer. So started in that way and then, um, you know, I think I ended up doing the promotions for about six months but by that stage I got a shift every Sunday doing... uh, A show. A a show, an on-air show. And then, of course, that became... Uh, a, a full-time shift through the day. Uh, then uh, New FM poached me to do breakfast for 12 months or so. Uh, then I went to, uh, I think I went to KO for a while and produced uh, Tanya and David in those days. Of course, David's sadly mm. no longer with us and Tanya's doing a great job now. Um, so, you know, I did that and then I got offered another job back at HD presenting the program that I'd wanted to present all along, which was Afternoons. So following John Laws, did that uh, and then uh, left that program, uh, you know, just felt not supported in that role, um, you know, largely. So left that and... Uh, got a phone call from 2NURFM, which is, of course, the university station. Uh, Todd Sargent was uh, the PD at that stage there. And he said, look, I don't have a job, but I think you're a good presenter. Um, You know, if you want to keep your hand in, if you want to volunteer, we'd love to have you. And I thought, you know what? It's not a job, but I still love radio. I'm not going to get paid, but I'll do it anyway. So I went and volunteered and can I tell you I had the best time mm. and it opened me to volunteering. I loved it because it was actually – I did it for the love of it. I did radio because I loved it and I realised that I'll always love it, you know, and if I 
you know, if something happens and I'm not a politician ever again, I'll always love radio, you know. Uh, And whether or not I I get a job or whether I volunteer or whether I, you know, do something else, I love that medium uh, because it's so immediate. And I can remember, actually, it's funny, Craig, I remember people sort of speculating in that early 2000 period, look, radio will die because people will get on Spotify yeah, or podcasts. Pandora's or podcasts and, and, and people won't listen to radio anymore because they'll be able to do other things with their time. It's interesting. Radio's actually had the biggest renaissance in the last five to seven years and, and podcasts are very popular too. Mm. But the reason why is that there's that human connection. Yeah, absolutely. So it's people actually want the connection. Hmm. You know, that's what this is about. It's about feeling as though someone else gets you and you belong to a herd. Hmm. You know, you belong to, you belong to a, a team, if you like. You yeah, know, and this, podcasts are a perfect example. You collect listeners that want to be on your team, that, yeah. you know, like the information, that want to learn and grow from the information hmm. that you're sharing. So, yeah, so, um, you know... So can and I ask, while you were going through these career mm. machinations and moving from Brisbane to Melbourne, uh, Central Coast, did you stay connected to politics at all? Yeah, I did. I was always, always politically interested. And it's quite interesting because my producer at uh, 2HD in those days, she was a fairly young woman and she was absolutely fantastic. But I'd sort of say, well, I think we should do this. And she'd say, oh... Can we do a little bit less politics today? Yeah, because I loved it. If, if, if it was up to me, the whole show just would have been packed with interviews with politicians yeah, okay. because I just saw it as so pivotal. You know, I, I always, you know, whenever I read the paper, I'd always read the politics section first. I tended to listen to political uh, radio programs and you know, I was always very interested. So I've never, ever lost that, Craig. Yeah. That's, I suppose... Um, it was a hobby. It was a passion. You know, I, I, I've always just been very interested. Just interested. In it. And so did and you ever see gone. yourself running? Um, I did. But again, getting back to those high school days, I, I sort of always thought I would do it. But I, I, I suppose life got in the way. It's a bit like John mm-hmm. Lennon's saying, yeah. you know, uh, you, you make all these plans and life gets in the way of your plans. I've butchered his saying. But um, it's basically, I, I wanted, I thought it would happen. I couldn't actually tell you how it was going to happen. Uh, I'd always stayed in contact with Joel and he always knew that I was interested. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd sort of had, and he used to say to me, you know, you should think about running one day. And I'd be like, oh, you know, I will. But I'm not sure when. And I had small children and yeah. obviously I'd moved a lot. You know, I'd been very busy. Um, Nick was working hideous, horrendous hours. I mean, and still does largely, mm. you know. So um, we were just very busy. Uh, so, yeah, so again, that volunteering at 2NUR turned into a full-time gig. Uh, so I started doing the morning program there. And then in uh, 2016, uh, well, actually it wasn't 2016, it was 2015, there was a redistribution of the seat. Oh, no, it must have been 2016. It was either late 2015, early 2016, there was a redistribution of the seat of Patterson. I'd interviewed Bob Baldwin many mm. times, you know, um, always had a good relationship with him. Uh, and, and, and look, I was one thing that I was absolutely passionate about was balance. Uh, Andrew Ollie again had taught me that um, even though I had a, 
a Labor political leaning. Um, I'd studied communications. I understood about journalistic integrity. I knew about political balance. And I was always very accurate and tried to give a balanced account of things political. You know, I often criticised Labor if I thought they'd made a bad decision. I still do from time to time in the caucus room. Um, You know, I think that's what you should be. I think you should be authentic, you know. So, uh, you know, and sometimes when I thought, you know, I thought John Howard was very brave about the guns decision in 96. I was right there when that happened in terms of... I remember driving to Canberra and that story, you know, the... the, um, Port Arthur massacre happening, uh, you know, I think that he should be very fondly remembered for how he's fundamentally changed our country and made it safer. Uh, and as we look at the atrocities that we're witnessing, you know, it's seemingly every day and every week now in America, um, we truly must guard that and be thankful yeah, for that. It is, it is a fundamental principle that we have a safer country because we have good gun laws. And John Howard was responsible for that and I'll mm. be forever thankful for him for that. So, you know... Well, I remember, I think it was a state election and uh, I asked you to um, uh, facilitate a political debate mm. between the candidates and I had no idea that you were a part of or no, worked yeah. for Joel or whatever. No, no, I, I've always were, guarded that very... did not, a great job. Like, yeah. a, I wouldn't have been able... No-one in the room would have gone, oh, that was a Labor person facilitating that No, that because... Meeting. And, and I think in, in honesty and fairness, and I actually think this about my career now, um, and, you know, Anthony Albanese has been quite upfront about this, people do get conflict fatigue. I think if you're just fighting for the sake of it, that's mm, a problem. Absolutely. And I actually think that people are looking for an alternate political conversation. Uh, and I get really... What I despair at is when people say all politicians are the same. Mm. Uh, we're not. Um, there are some really well-intentioned, smart people from both sides really wanting to make our country as good as it can possibly be and genuinely help people. And also there are really good public servants. They're smart people. They want to make good decisions. It's not just all about waste and gravy train and Canberra bubbles and stuff like that. It's actually hard. Mm. It really is. Um, And people really are very determined to make good decisions often. Yes, there are also some poor decisions. I'm not going to walk away from that either. But I think that would be a very strong message that I would say to people now. Please don't turn away from politics. Please don't cast all politicians in the same mould. We are not like all like that. And, you know, we need to actually get back to a point where people are interested in politics, that there is a feeling of pride in our democracy Mm. because we actually have a great democracy in Australia. Yes, things go wrong, but when you compare it, you know, with some of the things that are happening around the world, we have a vibrant democracy and we must be vigilant to maintain that. I remember a long time ago and I was living on the Central Coast, maybe in the early 2000s, and uh, Ames, my wife and I, were lined up to vote. I think it might have been a state election, local school. And I turned to her and I said, I have no idea who these people are that we're voting for. And I went, this is really sad. Um, There's people overseas that would give their life Mm. to have this that I have. This is wrong. And from that day on, I've read articles, listened to... Made an uh, effort. Made an effort. That's great. Because I think that you should... It's it's something that we take for granted and we Mm. shouldn't, so... Yeah, good on you. I wanted to ask you about... So, when you started... When you you ran... So, Mm. 
tell me about the time before you how, tell me about how that happens so you don't just rock up to a, a job and go hey i'm going to run for for the federal seat of patterson tell us about how that works yeah, it's a good question. So as, as I was mentioning earlier, the seat was redistributed. So uh, it then was pushed to the west and it took in from Neath over near Cessnock all the way to Port Stephens. But it took in Curry Curry, Head and Greta, Maitland. So my home area, yep. if you like. Uh, and I knew, uh, even though it was incredibly marginal, I think it was 0.1%, so basically completely marginal, uh, 0.1% to Labor after it was after the new boundary was drawn Bob, up. Bob had I don't know when it was that he got elected. It would have been late late nineties maybe, and it was one of the most marginal seats in Australia. And then he converted it into a safe Liberal seat. He did. Yeah, and he had that redistribution uh, was what swung it back to a marginal seat. A Is marginal that right? seat. That's absolutely true. Yeah, and of course you might remember that he and Bob Horn had that tussle uh, for a couple of elections okay, where Bob Horn won it, then Bob Baldwin won it, then Bob Horn won it back again, and then Bo- Bob Baldwin won it, and he then maintained it and made it indeed a safe, mm. conserve, safe Liberal seat. Uh, redistributed, so basically back to a completely marginal again. Uh, so what happened in the lead up to that? I could see that the seat was going to be more gettable, if yep. you like, for a Labor candidate. So there was an opportunity. There was an opportunity there. Uh, I spoke to Joel. You know, we talked about, if, you know, if there might be an opening, and I was fortunate enough to be pre-selected. So I had to go through a full so pre-selection. The, so tell me about that. So there's other candidates put their hand up. Is that how there it were, works? Yeah, so there, there five were. Five or six people go. I, I'd like to be nominated. Yeah, I think there were another two people. Okay. Um, and uh, we had pre-selection conversations in terms of I had to visit each branch yeah, in, the, okay. in the seat. So the Labor Party is made up of branches yep. of members. Uh, usually they meet on a monthly basis. So I went to each branch and I spoke at the branch meetings, as did the other people that wanted to be pre-selected. Uh, I made, I think I phoned every branch member three times. I made hundreds of phone calls and just had conversations with people. And they'd say, look, what do you think about this? What do you believe in? Tell me about yourself. It was like a job interview with all of these different people um, across the branches. So, uh, and then the Saturday of pre-selection came along. There's a vote that took place. uh, And uh, I won that convincingly, which was great. Um, And so then I was... You know you the, were candidate. The, the candidate. Yeah, yeah. and so. So then what happens then? Does do you have to get vetted by Canberra? Yes. Or? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. So then, uh, New South Wales Labor do the vetting First, for New okay. South Wales candidates. Yep. So then, you know, there's a sway the forms that you have to fill in. Um, you know, you have you have conversations with uh, what I call the cleanup squad. You know, they it's true. You know, and they still let you stay married to Nick. Yeah, wow. no, hey, <laughs> no. So it's you know, senior people get you in. They interview you. They you know, someone talks to you and you sit in a room like it's a bit like you know, sort of a movie. <laughs> and they say, okay, tell us the skills. Tell us everything yeah, about right, yeah. you, and. You know, fortunately, I had nothing to tell. Yep. Like, it was pretty boring, if you like. But, um, you know, we did that. Uh, and, then, of course, you know, the um, all the citizenship stuff comes up and you have to say, you know, where, you, where you're from. Well, I think I, my family's been living in Maitland for about six or seven generations and my dad's family had been living around Maitland and Head and Greta. So, you know, um, no I, had no, I had no issues with that. Uh, and it was all... 
you know, it was, but it, it was, it was just incredible. Right down to, I'll never forget um, the day that, like, the photograph for your posters that, you know, get plastered everywhere. Um, you know, they had a little make a makeup artist and someone does your hair and you they have these jackets that you put on and you're sitting there and people are photographing you. And I thought, I just thought to myself, mm, it just got very real. It sort experience. of hit me at that point. I thought, oh, my goodness, this mm, is very real. Happening. I've incidentally never been able to get my hair to look that good ever since that day. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, um, you know, it was it was very surreal and it's it's very busy. Uh, and basically you have a field manager that comes along um, and in that case, um, you know, that was Emily uh, Baldwin and she did a wonderful job. And and basically that person, they don't quite live with you but they almost live with you. Like yeah. you're, you're in contact with them from half past four in the morning till midnight um, and, you know... How did this decision affect family? How did it affect Nick and the girls? It did affect them in terms of, you know, I went from being home most nights mm. and, you know, cooking the dinner and all that sort of stuff to never being home and, and just being absolutely flat out. But we, we had a conversation, actually. That was one of the funny things. So were they part of the decision to, to do it? Yeah, when I, um, you know, when I wanted to, to run, uh, I said to Nick, look, you know, this is... And, and he knew instantly, he said, you need to go for it. Yeah. Um, and he said, you have spent the last... 15, however many years it's been, longer than that, 16 years traipsing around the country with me. He said, you've resigned from really good jobs to go with me for Harvey Norman, um, so it's your turn. Uh, and he was very forthcoming and, and generous about that. You know, he, he realised, he's like, it's your turn. I've, I've had a really good go and you've been amazing. Mm. Um, now it's your turn. So that was really lovely and I mean my children are that much older um so you know not that teenagers don't still need you but they're not quite the same as tiny little people I I don't think um so it's just a different dynamic yeah they do (laughs) change and you know and and I think the most important thing is that when I am with them now it's fully immersive you know like I'm really yeah really concentrating on what we're doing and we do things together so um yeah but you know politics is very absorbing uh you know and I suppose one of the upshots of it Craig is I never expected uh, I mean I'll be 49 in September and I think you go to school and uni and you make friends and you sort of have those lifelong friends and connection I didn't expect to make the friendships that I've made at this point in my life life, and I've made really beautiful friendships like you know probably five or six people now in Canberra that I know I'll have as lifelong friends you know we we laugh and say you know we'll we'll go to the home of permanently bewildered politicians and you know wipe the dribble off each other's chin (laughs) because we'll probably still be sprouting it but you know that's been a lovely thing I I, look it is cutthroat and there's people crawling all over the top of each other in terms of ego and ambition but there are also some really good decent people so we talked about so you, you've gone for an election and that election cycle, I'm guessing, would be just ridiculous in mm. terms of how busy you are. But you're also... The campaign. The yep. campaign, that's the word. Um, the Your photos everywhere, mm. you're becoming known. Mm. But then for three years, you're working. Yes. And you're, you're working probably harder. However, we don't see it. Mm. So as Craig sitting in his office on a random Wednesday... When the election cycle's on, um, there's news articles, there's mm. all sorts of different things. But when that, when you're in that sitting time, um, it's different. Mm. Um, 
tell me about the differences there and, and how you how you work and how you achieve because I don't think most people would understand the life of a politician and, and what you do. Mm. They just it's, see you standing in the in the chamber, um, standing up and giving a speech or making an argument or, you know, in, in your case, for example, PFAS is a good example mm. that you've been staunchly um, supporting and, and trying to change direction of the government on that. They see those little bits, but they mm. don't see everything else. No, so Tell no. me a little bit about your day. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I, I would say that the job is divided up into various components. Uh, one of the important things is that we have an office, an electorate office in yep. Raymond Terrace, and that is a hive of activity. It's a really busy place. So it's like my shop front, if you like. Yeah, okay. People come to the office all the time from when the doors open at nine to when they close at five. Um, they phone, they send emails, and of course now the other big contributing factor is, so we, you know, we often laugh about it. Historically, you know, politicians uh, used to catch trains to parliament or used to catch the steamer, you know, from Perth a ship, you know, to come <laughs> over and, you know, they'd write letters and there'd be weeks, you know, yeah. in response and now the world was slower. Instant. It was more general, uh, gentle, if you like. These days, of course, people contact you in many many ways you know I have a, a fantastic website and I was astounded I, I didn't actually realize this until um, one of my staff said do you know that you get like literally hundreds of inquiries on this website every day I was like oh I hadn't realized I knew that there'd be a few but yeah, everyday people googling Meryl Swanson MP and my website comes up and they're really interacting so that's another way and then of course you know your Twitter, your Facebook, mm. Instagram, all of those things. So there's so many ways for people to reach out. Yep. Um, and that can become unwieldy. Um, but so in terms of a day, uh, usually it starts with me receiving an email or in this case, usually a text from my hardworking media advisor who will give me the rundown on the media stories for the day, anything that I'm in. Uh, and we also have what we call a clipping service where there's clips sent through from the leader's office. Okay. And that's about the big issues. So it's about looking to see, you know, for example, there's been a bit of a hit to the stock market in America today, things like that. So just worldly things. Mm -hmm. And again, I've always been interested in yeah. that. So Your media and communications yeah, training, great. Just like to know what's going on, you know. Basically, like all human beings, you open your eyes in, your, in the morning and you sort of think, what's happened overnight you know yeah. is is the water safe to drink is it is the world a safe place today what's happened in my world today yeah. that sort of thing you know what have I got to do today um so that is basically that touching base that every morning you know finding out where you are and then usually it's you know okay I've looked at the diary the night before one of the biggest things is okay what have I got on tomorrow and what am I going to wear um <laughs> you know sensible shoes or is it a presentation or have I got to have my photograph taken or am I doing a tv interview or you know what's happening um so then it's the day lay before you and it could be as I did yesterday, first stop was a school for education week. I uh, went to an assembly there, made a presentation at the assembly, spoke to the children about their voice and, you know, that was absolutely fantastic. And then you might um, get to the office and there'll be phone calls on the way from colleagues or staff. Uh, a lot of it um, – and then – those people that come to the office, what are they coming for? They're coming for help with things like their yeah. NDIS. You know, we've been trying to get the MBN put it put on in our business or I'm running a business and I've got no internet, yep. you know. Uh, um, 
I've got a child that desperately needs a wheelchair under the NDIS and I can't get one, you know. Yep. Um, look, I'm having trouble with Centrelink, you know, I can't get through on the phone. So all of these things are constantly coming in. So I was going to ask you, because you said, and you mentioned it before, that you like to help people. Yep. How do you handle those times when you can't? Mm, it's tricky. Uh, and again, I've got great staff who do a lot of that, what we call constituent work. Yep. Uh, and I'll get involved if it, invo- if it involves something uh, where I might be able to talk to someone, like talk to a minister and say, look, we've got this really big issue. Can you help me with this? Um, it's hard. It's disappointing. Um, but often we get really good results as well. So how do I deal with it? Sometimes you have to be uh, circumspect about it and just think we've we've absolutely tried every avenue to help this person, um, and it's it's just not possible. Uh, so you might point them in other directions, but often we do have wins, and we've had terrific wins over the last three years, like many many wins where people have been assisted, and that is the best feeling, you yeah, know. Good. When you get a thank you card or someone comes in with a box of chocolates and they, <laughs> you know, give them to the staff and say... And, and I think that's actually my favourite. It's when someone writes to me and says, this, staff member this, did this. person in your office yeah. went above and beyond and I am... And you've, you've actually... This has changed my life. You know, it comes down to recruitment, doesn't it? You've it does. recruited a great team. Yeah, I have. I have <laughs> recruited a great team. And, and anyone, any politician who says, you know, that uh, it's all about them and not about their staff, they're telling porkies because, you know, that team shoulders a large portion of the work, if you like. I'm kind of the song and dance person out the front and out the back. Um, and I, you know, and I think that's one of the things you asked too. What other things do I do? I... I I'm a consensus leader, so I bring my team in and we, we make a lot of How decisions together. Team? Four permanent Four, yep. people, yep, and a couple of uh, relief staff if someone gets sick. Yep. Um, so it's a big load. It's mm. a very big load. Uh, and those of that four, often one or two of those people will come to Canberra. Uh, so when they're in Canberra, that's a big load on the people that stay behind. Yep. Um, and so, you know, I might be on the phone... Um, talking to someone, another colleague about an issue and how we might be able to resolve that. I'm always advocating for things that need to be improved locally and I'm thinking, okay, who can help me with that? Who can I get to visit the electorate? How can we push this issue? You mentioned PFAS, that's been a big one. Mm. At the moment I'm I'm what on what I call the M1 mission. So, you know, the government made the announcement in the last budget that they do want to put in the Raymond Terrace bypass and get rid of that sort of mess that is from Beresfield across the Hexham Bridge Mm -hmm. and on past Raymond Terrace. You know, it was needed 15 years ago. It's long overdue. And it's not just us that need it locally. It's all of those people that are travelling from Sydney to Brisbane, particularly Mm. the truckies. You know, it's a main freight route uh, and it's a bottleneck, so... I know it's a problem and we're working on it. So I'm constantly, okay, I'm talking to the leader's office about putting up a question to the government, but I'm also talking to people like Michael McCormack about it, you know, directly saying, Michael, you made that promise, what's happening with it? And I have to say, you know, he's been quite helpful. Uh, one, I'll give you a great example of what I, one of the things I've done that people might not know very much about, Craig. When I was first elected in 2016, John Borghetti was then the CEO of Virgin Airlines. And, you know, people lobby. 
they invited all of the first-time members from the Labor team to a dinner. And we had to go around the table and introduce ourselves. Obviously, John's an expert in airlines and tourism and all of that stuff running Virgin. He's just, res- just recently resigned from that role. But anyhow, so we went around the table and people were, you know say showing off but they were sort of you know sort of espousing Trying. their knowledge of tourism and the airline industry and you know talking about new planes and new this and new whatever and um it got to me and I said oh look thank you firstly for inviting me here to dinner it's lovely I said I'd like two things I'd like an international uh, route at Newcastle airport and I'd like a lounge and that's it so, and he, and he sort of looked at me aghast and, you know, moved on to the next person. And then after dinner, he came to me, gave me his card and he said, you are a breath of fresh air. Here's my card. Email yep. me. So, I, you know, madly email him and say, great to meet you. This is what we need at Newcastle. People need to be able to fly to another country from mm-hmm. Newcastle. And More then, importantly, we need them to come in here. Yeah, exactly. Spend their money. That's right. <laughs> and so, then I um, madly... Uh, emailed Peter Cock, who's the CEO of Newcastle Airport Limited, and Peter and I have had a great relationship, and I knew that that's what they were pushing for too. So uh, I said to Peter, quickly, send John Borghetti an email, you know, and tell him uh, this is what yeah. we need, you know. And lo and behold, uh, he did that. Uh, three months went past. Uh, I get an email from John Borghetti and Peter, and Peter says, Virgin are going to fly to New Zealand out of Newcastle. Awesome. Now... Well, that was awesome, but the problem was that to make that happen, you need... Security. Security. Mm -hmm. And that's a federal government responsibility. So it's like, oh, my God, they want to do it now. Now, Newcastle had built the terminal because they knew it would happen eventually, but they just didn't know when, like whether it be in 12 months, in five years, but they had the space, so they developed the terminal. So then I had to go to Michael McCormack and say... Virgin want to fly into Newcastle. Can you please make this happen? Now, it was a cabinet decision. So I was directly texting, communicating with him, you know, putting pressure on. And the night it went to cabinet, he texted me and he said, it's done, you're a persuasive person, well <laughs> done. And, you know, we opened it. And he told, he told that story at the opening of the airport. And uh, I believe he's actually told it before, using it as an example of bipartisanship and how mm. people can work together. But it was an example of I know that my absolute direct involvement in lobbying helped. I mean, of course, a lot yeah. of other people helped as well. I'm not, right. I didn't do it on my own. But that's something that a politician can do and achieve that's real. So when people fly in for the supercars from New Zealand, it's because we lobbied so yeah. hard and we made that happen. So it's things like that. They're live examples Very of good. things that we're working towards. You know, the other thing is the JSFs have, are coming in, the, the new planes to Williamtown. Uh, in terms of the defence industries. So I'm, I've been working with Boeing, uh, with Lockheed Martin. These are companies that help maintain and build the planes, employ engineers. I've also been working with the University of Newcastle. So for the first time, they are going to offer an aer- aeronautical engineering degree at Newcastle, Newcastle because we need young people yep. to be fully able to work in that space to be able to fix the planes, work on them, uh, but not just that, work in that whole defence industry. Yep. So it's about seeing the need and hearing the need from the people in the industries and then being able to help progress yep. that. So obviously I'm not doing it all on my own, but 
as the federal member, I do have a fair bit of clout. Yep. You know, I can pick up the phone and talk to people and I do that. And that's my skill set. I've always been good at bringing people together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I, and I love doing that, Craig. So that's where it's really important. Yeah, sometimes you've got to go to war and you've got to, you know, advocate. Uh, PFAS is a good example. Uh, but other times it is about bringing people together. It's about bringing, you know unlikely partnerships together and mm. making things work like that. And I think that that is something that not enough people understand about politics. So tell me about Merrill's career now. So yep. you've been re-elected, yep. so three years, you've got another three years to go. Do you have aspirations or do you have plans? Do you have an idea of where you'd like to go or is it going to be, I'm going to be couple more terms potentially and I'll keep fighting or then I'm going to go do something else what it's do you a good do? yeah it's a good question um I'm still enjoying it you know and it was interesting because when I was elected there was this sort of feeling of oh I always thought that I would do this um and then there was a bit of surprise because it was like, oh, I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually enjoying it, it yeah. because I'm doing it, but I'm actually enjoying it as well. Because often you can think you want to do something and yeah. you get into it and you're like, Absolutely. oh, this is not what I thought it'd be. Yep. And fortunately for me, largely it was. There were a couple of elements of it and I thought, oh, you know, seriously. But on the whole, it, it is really good. So plans. Yeah, look, I've, I've got plans. The plans are to work as hard as I can right now in this present moment. Um, I'm, there's areas that I'm interested in. Uh, I would like to um, contest the seat again. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and I think, look, I think the, the most important thing is having that passion but feeling relevant as well yeah. uh, in terms of the decisions that you're making. Uh, in terms of my personal aspirations, of course I'd like to be a minister one day. You know, mm -hmm. I'd like to first get to government, yeah. you know. Um, I was going to ask you about that even. Yeah, I'd be lying if I said I didn't, Craig. I mean, yeah. anyone who goes into politics, if you don't want to be in government, then what are you doing? I mean, government is the main game. It's where you actually get to well, make decisions. To you haven't got to experience that yet. No, Even I haven't. just from a – if you take the politics out yep. of it from a career perspective, you for six years you'll be – in in um in opposition That's and it's right. a different job. It is. And so if then in in the next election you Labor wins, you'll be in a different career. That's essentially. Right. Essentially, that's it. And uh, I had some very good advice from someone in politics about that. They said, "You think opposition's hard? Government's heaps harder <laughs> because you're actually really responsible." Then yeah. you know, in opposition, you're fighting. Uh, and and look, it, it's true to a certain extent, but you can. You can achieve a lot from opposition, and I think that I'm testimony to that. Um, but yes, absolutely, of course, I want to be in a government. You yep. know, that's that's the main game in politics. You want to be in the treasury benches where you control the money and you control the decisions, and you have a, a, a say in what happens. So obviously, that uh, the more short term, uh, Albo has asked me to be the chair of a task force on regional jobs. So that's something that I'm really sinking my teeth into at the moment. Uh, it's um, akin to he rang me and sort of said, "Look, it's it's a bit akin to being um, a parliamentary secretary or you know a, a junior uh, type person uh, in terms of up the ministerial ladder." So it's I guess it's. But you've been have you been actively selected for that because of your achievements, or is it, is, it, is it a reward for yes, the work you've done? I believe yep. so. Yeah, I okay. believe it is. Um, and so I'm going to you know hopefully do a really good job of that. Uh, and have something to show so for it. So it's a stepping block to, it is, to it further, is, yeah. further career aspirations. Absolutely. So, you know, clearly um, we all we all have aspirations and I would like to do that. Uh, and then, you know, you just 
want to make good decisions. Uh, I think the other the other goal um, is that I really want to broaden my communication with the community. So I do have good links into the community already, but I guess. Uh, I was a bit dismayed by the amount of informal votes at the last election. There was a high number of informal votes, about 10 or 12%. Mm-hmm. So that's a lot of people who just go in and yeah. get their name marked off and don't vote. They're just doing a chore. I want to communicate. I, I guess I want to hopefully tune people back into politics a little bit yeah, more. Okay. And it goes back to your comment before yeah. about the right to vote. Mm. Um, I visited countries where people are literally dying Mm-hmm. for that right. Oh, they yeah. they they lose their life in that attempt to, for democracy. Uh, we've got that here in Australia. So one of the greatest heartbreaks for me is when I'm standing there on election day and people come in and grumble about having to vote, oh, bloody voting, you know. Or, and and I, I just want to say to them, just hang on a minute. Mm. This is actually a great privilege. We... You, you don't know how good you've got it in terms of having the opportunity to have your say. Hmm. Even if it does involve drawing a rude picture on the ballot paper. <laughs> you know, I'm hope, I'm hopefully people will stop doing that because the poor people that work at the AEC have to see it. But, you know, it is a great privilege. And even though vo- voting is compulsory, it is a great privilege to get the opportunity to have your say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, at any level of government. And, you know... It's an important thing uh, and until we figure out a better system, democracy is what we've got hmm. um, and I think it's really important. You don't, look, you don't necessarily have to be a political beast. You don't have to love politics but you just have to Being cast informed. your vote. Yep. You know, and so that's one of the things that I want to set myself as a goal to, to hopefully bring politics back to people and people back to politics a little bit so that they are a little bit more engaged and it's a massive task and there'll always be people who hate it and don't want to know about yep. it and that's cool. Um, but, you know, if I can be that person who um, perhaps persuades Reduces people... Reduces that 10%, hey? Mm. Okay. All right, we've got the tough question. Okay. Career Conversations Podcast Time Machine. If we rewound the clock to 20-year-old Meryl... Given what you know today, what advice would you give her? Oh, you know, I've been... I, I knew this question was coming and I have been thinking about it uh, and I'm still not much further down the track of what <laughs> advice I'd give. Look, I think I would say two things. Um, one, it all works out, so don't freak out about it. You know, mm. don't worry. It's important. That's important. Don't, don't worry so much. Yep. I, w- I am naturally a worrier and 20-year-old me... I was very ambitious and very driven and, you know, how do we get there and what do we do and, you know, how do I goal Wanted set? by 21. Yeah, you know, and you want to you do everything. You don't want to waste a minute. And, you know, largely I didn't. Um, but I think I would say it's okay. It's going to work out. Um, and also the unlikely things can present amazing yeah, opportunities. Absolutely. and. I'll never forget, it's just a small thing, but when I was working at MBN, someone really senior resigned and it was a complete shock to everyone, all of us. We were so shocked. But it was a real wake-up to me. I thought, oh, things change. Mm. Opportunities open up, you know. Um, and don't don't be afraid to say yes to things that you don't automatically see as being, you know, beneficial. You just don't know where the benefits will come. And I think the other thing, Craig, is... Throughout my life, I've done things 
that I didn't necessarily think, oh, I didn't know if I wanted to do them, but I enjoyed them as much. Uh, I'm very much a person where if you give me a task, I can find the enjoyment in it and I enjoy it for what it is. Like whether it's working as a, as a waitress in a restaurant or as a kitchen hand or, you know, I enjoyed that for what it was yeah, at absolutely. that time and I saw value in it. So I think I would say there's value in every single job. There really is, you know. It doesn't matter what you do. There is value in it if you give yourself the credit and the value and think we need everyone doing all manner of things to make our society and our community work. And one job is no less valuable than another, even though remuneration might be different. different. And I think that's a really important point. I remember reading this really incredible piece, Craig, about why people do the jobs they do and I think it, it was it was may have been um, in the uh, New Atlantic it was an American journal and I think it was about American janitors in high schools and it takes a certain person and it's not and you might equate it to a cleaner often people saw a great sense of pride in mm. doing it's a really important job Yep, they were helping the young people get educated yeah. and without them they yeah. don't go to school and, and we need clean safe hygienic environments and for them it was a source of pride look at my you know this floor is spotless and shiny this place is looking at its best because I made it that way so if you enjoy that and take pride in that and you love what you do it doesn't matter two penneths worth what someone else thinks of your job if they think it would be a terrible job Oh, and the lesson is you can be a federal politician even after washing dishes at a Absolutely. restaurant. Absolutely. Cleaning, you know, the guts out of octopus. I mm. remember, do you remember octopus was really big <laughs> in the late 80s? Like it was the thing to have on you. Baby octopus salad was a big thing. <laughs> it was too. Yeah, they've got brains. You have to take them out before you serve them to people. I did a lot of that. Gross. <laughs> you yep. know, it's good. Very good. All right, well, we've taken up way too much of your time, but we really appreciate it to... Uh, learn about a federal politician and your aspirations and how you got to where you are and why you do what you do so really appreciate it thanks Meryl thanks Craig it's been a really really big pleasure thank you truly special thank you to our guest today Meryl Swanson the member for Patterson uh, for giving up such her time but more importantly for giving us such an open and honest account of of how she's become our member and, and what it's like to navigate the pathway to be a politician Uh, If you'd like to learn more about Meryl's story, uh, her Facebook page is quite informative and it keeps you up to date with what's happening in our electorate. So uh, we'll put a link to that in our show notes. Uh, If you've enjoyed our conversation so far, then please uh, go to Apple uh, iTunes, our podcast section or in SoundCloud and give us a rating and let us know if there's any uh, guests you'd like to hear. Thanks again for, for listening to our Career Conversations podcast. Until next time, I'm Craig McGregor.